Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Over the last century, delivery models and business practices in community pharmacy drastically changed. In recent years, we've seen this trend accelerate significantly. Dr. Randy McDonough, CEO and co-owner of Towncrest Pharmacy in Iowa City, Iowa, is with me today to share some of the exciting opportunities for taking back the profession. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Gretchen, I appreciate it. I'm actually excited about being able to talk with you. I've had the privilege of knowing you through pharmacy for about 30 years now. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your practice site? Yeah, you know, I've had a, a varied background <laughs> with my career. And I graduated in 1987 the first time. And that's was my bachelor's degree. And did a lot of different practice settings during that time, including working in independence, working for hospital, working for chain. During those early years, three years of my career, I worked for Eli Lilly as a pharmaceutical representative and learned a lot. Developed a lot of good skills and not just in sales and marketing, but just how to communicate with different groups of people that aren't pharmacists. I got a call out of the blue one day from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy, and they were getting ready to start developing clerkship sites, clinical sites for community pharmacy. And they saw the background I had with being with Eli Lilly that I knew a lot of community pharmacists in Iowa. And so I was very fortunate they brought me in, but it was with the understanding that if I came in, I was going to further my education because by then the entry-level PharmD had been implemented. I realized that I had a bachelor's degree and it was time for me to expand my horizons with my education. So I was able to get first my master's in pharmacy administration with an emphasis on adult education. Then I tracked right in from there and they had a non-traditional PharmD program and they only had it for a few years and I was one of the people that took advantage of that non-traditional. Got my PharmD and during that time I was also starting to help implement practice transformation within community pharmacies. It started with the Iowa Center for Pharmaceutical Care which was a collaborative effort between the Iowa Pharmacy Association and University of Iowa College of Pharmacy and Drake College of Pharmacy. The faculty of that Iowa Center of Pharmaceutical Care actually helped to transform community pharmacy practices. It was during that time, though, that I was challenged by one of the people I was working with who said, you just don't really understand how hard this is because you're not doing it yourself. So I was able to find a practice site, which you're familiar with because you're a student of mine there, and that was at Maynard Locust Pharmacy in Davenport. So they took a chance on me, and they paid the college for my time. It was really the first time there was a shared faculty member within a community pharmacy was there for a good nine years and helped to transform that practice and really became a wonderful site, not only as a learning laboratory, but to implement really innovative services. That led then to me having the opportunity to become an owner. And I just made full professor in July 1 of 2006, and I left on July 6 of 2006 to become co-owner of Towncrest Pharmacy, which at the time was just two independent community pharmacies. In these 17 years, we have grown it from two pharmacies to where we have eight pharmacies, six community pharmacies, one long-term care pharmacy, and one cash-based pharmacy, which emphasizes compounding and also functional medicine. We're really excited about where we're going in the future and our opportunity to have an impact and develop our brand of the way I think community pharmacy needs to be practiced. 
Well, I definitely have great memories of being one of your students, and that was a big part of why I wanted to bring you on the podcast today. So thank you for sharing that fantastic background that has been able to set you up for success within your career. I know you have a hopeful message to share with our listeners, but let's start with a reality check of the current situation. What are some of the challenges facing community pharmacy right now? And it's scary, to be honest, and I tell people that there's a cliff approaching, and that cliff is coming at a rapid pace, and it's very steep, and we're probably going to lose at least independent community pharmacies. But we're already aware that we have chain pharmacies in the community setting that have closed down the pharmacy department, or they've reduced their hours because of what they call a shortage, which I say there's not really a shortage of pharmacists as much as there's a relative shortage where people want better workplace conditions. We went to school to use our knowledge and our skills to better the drug therapy of our patients. And if we don't have that opportunity, we become frustrated. Part of that reason for this cliff that's coming and that a lot of people really don't know about unless you're in it yourself. Legislation was passed at the national level that retroactive DIR fees can no longer happen in 2024. All these pharmacy benefit managers have to change how they're doing things. It's not that DIR fees go away. That's why I want people to understand, yeah, that retroactiveness of them go away. Starting in 2024, at the point of sale will be your lowest effective price. The challenge of that early 2024 is that you still have 2023 where they're doing the retroactive DIR fees. So you got a double whammy happening in that first quarter where you have a lowest price, lowest amount you were getting reimbursed at the sale, but you're also having retroactive DIR fees being pulled out during that first quarter. I just got back from a national meeting called Mid-Year for CPSM, which is Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network, a 3,500 strong network of clinically integrated community pharmacies. We know that this thing's going to hit pretty fast. And all the owners there were talking about how their cash flow is already bad. We're talking about people who have been in business for a long time. These are not just novices. So we have made good business decisions. This has nothing to do with us not making good decisions. It has everything to do with how the market has just shifted so poorly in the reimbursement without us getting that provider status and be able to build for the clinical side, we're being built for a product of which now the product, the margins are just not, there is no longer a professional fee that's out there. So those are some of the things that are happening that's really causing major disruption within our business model, which means for us to survive, we're going to have to figure out and disrupt in our own way. Well, I know you've been successful in addressing some of these challenges at your pharmacy. Tell me a little bit about it. The former owners that I call my senior partners, Bill and Bernie, brought me on when I had no reason to leave the university. I had a great gig. I loved my job. I loved teaching students. I loved my practice at Maine at Locust. But they at least saw the writing on the wall that things were changing with the reimbursement. And even though money was still being made on the product distribution, they were trying to prepare themselves for the future. They didn't have to do that. That's why they brought me on board is to start creating a different way of, of making revenue. Although the early days of me being an owner, you could still make money on the distribution side. That's not where I want to put my focus. And so when I came on board, it became very much a clinically focused pharmacy. We started developing all these clinical cash-based services. We have these to this day. Very diverse array. I mean, anywhere from immunizations to point-of-care testing to medication therapy management to consulting with physicians and groups and doing compliance packaging, but in a different way where we really called it our medication management program, where it's not just packaging. It's also doing the reconciliation, making sure the patient is achieving the outcome. So really putting the clinical focus to that. 
that started bringing in some new revenue. The revenue that we're losing on the product side is so fast and so steep that even with those services, we have to do more. Then we started exploring what other things can we do to disrupt our practice model? I had the idea and it really came from my son. He was on rotations and was telling me about some of these practices that he was at that were really cash-based practices. And one in particular, he was talking about really got involved in functional medicine along with compounding. We already had a compounding pharmacy. We went that route early on. That was one of my ideas working with my business partner, Mike Denninger, who has a PhD in pharmaceutics. So it just made sense that we specialize in compounding. And we purposely did not make our compounding pharmacy one that was beholden to insurers and to the PBM. We made it as an independent corporation and it was all cash-based. We took that and we saw a building that was right across the street from our current building for Towncrest Pharmacy. And we decided to buy that building and get it out. And we have the front end of that practice being Towncrest Wellness Apothecary, where we moved in our compounding, which was down the basement of our original building, and in addition to expanding in functional medicine. That is a practice that is up and going. It started in mid-January of 2022. What I'm excited about, usually you look about three to five years to break even. We had our first First break even month within 13 months. So February of 2023 and March of 2023, we made real money. So now the operations is not only paying for itself, but it's bringing in real revenue. This is exciting for me because no PBM, no dictation as far as how much I can get paid. It's me making the determination, what's the price and, and how much should we get paid for the services? And it's not just the product that I'm talking about. It's also the consultations. People value our knowledge. People value what we can do for them. The other thing we did, I said the front half of the building, it's really two buildings and one. The behind building is called Towncrest LTC. We were a combo shop, which means we could do both long-term care and as much as I hate the word retail pharmacy. But when we moved over to the new building, Towncrest LTC, we made it a closed door. And that helps with some of the reimbursement and also reductions in DIR fees. Now we're getting ready. There's something called medical at home for those patients who don't want to go into a facility but need more help. And there are certain criteria that meets that. And if their plan that they're on has that designation or that benefit, then we can move them into this. And then we can provide packaging for them in addition to other med management services to help them stay at home and be more functional. That model we started as well. So those are two things that to me are bright spots in addition to all the clinical services that we're providing. And we haven't moved away from the model of trying to get more value-based contracts. People have always asked me, what are your proudest accomplishments? When I could say, yeah, I was successful going from an academic position to an owner, but I don't look at that. I just felt like I was supposed to do that because I was preaching to people about the importance of you can do clinical pharmacy and community pharmacy and get paid for it. I felt like if I didn't do that, it'd be the biggest hypocrite in the country. But it's when I saw the impact that PBMs were having on the reimbursement of community pharmacy. And we first really saw the bad impact in early 2013. And literally overnight, we saw a 40, 50% reduction in our effective rate from one PBM, but it was a PBM that was with our biggest payer in the state. I also challenged the payer to look at pharmacy in a different way and said, well, what can you do? And so we did a pilot project of which we took care of 600 of their beneficiaries. These are their commercial plan beneficiaries. And through that year, we were able to show them through us doing appropriate medication management, we could save them $300 per member per month. This is not my data, this is their claims data. 
You know, this is them telling us this is how much you saved us. That's real money. If you times that by the 600 patients, you're talking about $2 million or more dollars that we save them in one year with one pharmacy. That led to a value-based pharmacy program through this payer for which 74 pharmacies participated over a three-year period. And we got it published. But in this project with the 74 pharmacies in one year, we saved them 4.5% of their costs, which again, if you translate that to dollars, you're talking, you know, $13, $14 million that this group of pharmacies saved them on one year. Where I really want people to understand with the payers is I think people look at just drugs, how can you get them inexpensively, how you can get them cheaply. But what I tell people is there's another pandemic going on in this country that people don't seem to be aware of. And that pandemic is drug therapy problems or medication related problems. Back when you were a student, we say for every dollar we spend on drug therapy, we spend another dollar to correct it. But that came from the study from Bootman, who published that in the mid-1990s. Then I looked at some more recent data. In 2016, there was a publication that said for every dollar we spend on drug therapy, we spend about $1.62 to correct the problems related to inappropriate medication use. If you just look at how much we spend on drug therapy today, and then you just look at the statistics on medication-related problems, we probably have gone up more than double. So we're spending closer to $2 to $2.50 per prescription that we dispense because it's being used inappropriately. That needs to be addressed. We keep focusing on cheap drugs, but it's not cheap drugs that keep people out of the hospital. It's appropriate medications. And who best but a pharmacist who has relationships with patients, who has accessibility, and who has the education and training. And I used to be hesitant to say we're the drug therapy expert. I'm not hesitant at all to say that anymore. With the explosion of amount of drugs that are out there and you know, the complexities of our patients and polypharmacy and multiple conditions that people have, the pharmacist has that therapeutic knowledge. They have that training, and including residency, post-degree training in residencies, that we really are the people who are the drug therapy experts more than anybody else because that's been our focus. That's the preaching I do to third-party payers, to regulators, to CMS. I have presented to these different groups, and I just said, someday you're going to look back and saying, we do have a problem, and we need to make sure patients are being appropriately treated with their medications. I agree with you 100% about the pharmacists being the medication experts, and interesting to think of that in terms of the cost of correcting drug therapy-related problems and seeing that increase over the years. It sounds like diversification of services has really been one of the keys to your success, and we are a profession as pharmacy that has has gone from one of entrepreneurs to one of employees. So how do we shift the narrative back to entrepreneurialism in terms of attitude or approach? I was speaking to a group of individuals who are academics, but they really are focused on community pharmacy that were part of this meeting I was at this past week. It's called ACT, which is Academia CPSN Transformation. They're working to help transform pharmacy practice. But we talked about what needs to happen, and I straddle both sides. I'm an academic, and I understand the value of academia, but I'm also an owner. And I always tell people when I was at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy, I always said I was a misplaced community pharmacist who happened to find a home in academia. It's fun for me to actually straddle both because I can see both. So it's hard for people to say, well, he doesn't know because he's not in this. It's like, well, I do know. In working with this group, I'm the only one who is an owner and a practitioner. And so I tell them that here's this cliff coming. And I said, most people in academia who aren't in the realm or the perspective of community pharmacy, you don't even understand it. It's scary. If we lose community pharmacy, which is real, or we lose a portion of it, that's a major impact on the whole profession. That will have a ripple effect across everything. So they asked me, what do you do? I said, the one word that I keep coming up with is disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. And what I mean by that is I can't wait 
for us to get provider status. Remember, I got this 12 months that's coming, that's looming over me right now. I can't wait for value-based contracts, which aren't even sufficient enough to keep me open. They'll provide me new revenue, but not at the rate of which I'm losing that revenue. Nor can I wait for provider status because we've been fighting that for years. That's the long run. I still support those efforts and we need to keep doing those efforts. But in the short run, we got to disrupt to find new revenue. We've got to be promoting within colleges of pharmacy because they have elective courses, entrepreneurism or innovation in pharmacy. This is not an elective. To me, this is a necessity. Everybody should have that. And I teach my students in my course because I am a, a professor at Loma Linda University School of Pharmacy in Southern California. You think you're born to be an entrepreneur, but you're not. So I wasn't born to be an entrepreneur, but I had an entrepreneurial attitude. The entrepreneurial attitude means that you look at things that are evolving, things that are changing, and it may not always be for the better. But within that change, the way that you look at that evolution, you start seeing new opportunities that didn't exist before. And a good entrepreneur exploits those opportunities. I know when we hear exploit, that's normally a bad term, but this is not a bad thing. What you're doing is you're looking for how do I use that opportunity to improve what I'm doing to create a new market, a new way of making money, a new way to survive, not to just survive, but thrive. And that's what I think needs to be taught. So when I saw this cliff coming many years ago, I started that planning. One was, okay, what can we do right now? Well, low-hanging fruit. Let's optimize our immunizations. We were ready whenever the Zostavax first came out and then Shingris came out. And we were ready when HPV became a big thing. And we were even more ready when COVID-19 became a huge thing. We were the first one and we actually invested in a ultra cold freezer because we're like, if we don't have it, we may not get access to the vaccine. And so we did that. So we're always looking at what do we do to exploit the opportunity so that we are a solution to our patients and a solution to our community and a solution to the payer. That's what I mean about being an entrepreneur is looking for those opportunities in that massive change that can be very intimidating and very scary, but finding what do I do differently that is of value to the people that I'm caring for and to the people who are paying for that care. Because if the community pharmacies fail, it's ultimately the patients who will suffer. That's what's really scary right now is and when I say we're going to lose some people, these are going to be people who may be the only healthcare provider in their communities and rural pharmacies being hit just as hard as everybody else. And so when we lose those healthcare providers, we talk about pharmacy deserts, but we're really talking about just medical care deserts. If that community pharmacy is the only one that's the you know, closest one around, you lose that trusted resource, that trusted individual who won't be there anymore. We have so many communities, Gretchen, that come to me on a regular basis. We lost our pharmacy a number of years ago. We really want to bring one back. We you come. And I make it very real for them. I said, here's how I'll come. You got to guarantee me that whatever businesses you have in town, they have to use us. If there's a school system in town, you need to get us connected. We really need to get everybody within the school system on board that they use our pharmacy. And they're looking at me like, well, we can't do that. Then I said, then I can't open up a pharmacy. The reimbursement's not there. We got to look for alternative ways of making money, which include providing services to these groups, but for a fee, for payment. And if you can't support that, then you really can't support a community pharmacy. And they kind of walk away dejected with their head down because as you know, being in pharmacy is such an unfair system. We get dictated to what we get paid. This whole year since post-COVID, we, all we talk about is inflation. All of my costs have gone up and yet my prices are going down. How do you survive in that? We did a deep dive into our financials with the six community pharmacies that we own. Over 25% of our prescriptions that we filled were at a dollar or less. Over 25%, over a quarter of our prescriptions 
If you look at any study out there that talks about what's the cost to dispense medication, it's anywhere from 10 to $12. And for over a quarter, and that's just going to increase, I'm getting a dollar or less. If we don't disrupt and we don't start looking at a different practice model that provides a new payment model, we're not going to survive. And that's just the truth. This is me looking at it from a financial perspective. And I have to, because I own these eight pharmacies. I've invested a lot of money in these eight pharmacies. And people ask me, so why did you even do that during the midst of this change? Because I believe there's value. And I believe that this is the time for us to take advantage of that evolution, because if we can provide these services that are of value to the community, to the payer, we will find and we have found those new revenue sources that's going to make us successful. It's going to be a tight number of years because the investment we made, but I'm not crazy. I would not have done this if I did not see that there was a a bright light at the end. And I see this entrepreneurial attitude and this ability to disrupt, this ability to exploit change that we're going to find a way that's going to be very successful. That's going to change the face of how community pharmacy is practiced. Randy, what is your vision for the future of what community pharmacy could look like and how do we get there? My vision for community pharmacy is is pretty simple. Pharmacists really need to be the ones who take responsibility for the drug therapy and making sure our patients' medications are optimized. So I see community pharmacists being the accessible part of the profession that we become that first defense for that patient and that we're paid to be that person who is the drug therapy expert. We're paid for our knowledge. We're paid to provide these services to our patients and help them optimize their medication. It's not that we don't dispense, but that becomes such a secondary part of what we do by optimizing the use of our technicians. So I see the technician product verification being across the board around the country that's just accepted by boards of pharmacy that we have to optimize the use of our technicians. And I see not only the technician product verification, but how do we optimize our technicians in other ways, such as making them immunized which we were able to do during the COVID-19 experience. We also have community health workers now, which we are getting our technicians trained in that, where they can be this liaison between the pharmacy and to the patients who otherwise don't have access to care. We talk about social determinants of health and how can the community pharmacy, which again should be a solution, for the community. How can they utilize community health workers? These technicians have been trained in community health work and to identify these social determinants of health issues, these health disparity issues, and connect our patients within the community to the resource in the community to help them overcome some of the obstacles that they have. But I also see more and more of these innovative services that are being developed by pharmacists, whether it be pharmacogenomics, I said, with the way that medicine is evolving and it's so individualized, I said, I can't even fathom what it's going to look like five years from now as far as what pharmacists are going to be able to do. But pharmacists have got to accept it's the services, it's the knowledge, it's their clinical abilities that's going to keep them in the long game. And that's going to be the future of community pharmacy. I always use the word community pharmacy, and I try to put that operator word, clinical community pharmacy, where we're going to find success in the future is going to be our clinical abilities and our abilities to affect the positive outcomes for our patients and their drug therapy. Definitely a great vision. Thank you for sharing that. And I know you have a lot more to share. So where can people go to learn more about your approach to community pharmacy? They can come to our website at Towncrest and they can look at all of our different practices. More cash-based practices will exist. It won't be just the ones that we developed, which is functional medicine and compounding, but also Blueberry Pharmacy is a good example of where they developed a cash-based prescription pharmacy. And we're also looking at that as well, too, or a subscription model. Those are the places that I would tell people they could look at our website, see some of the things that we're doing. If people go on my LinkedIn, I blog on a regular basis. That will lead them to where I actually put the blog 
which is on my Substack. And so I try to put things that are challenging the profession currently, try to provide with new ideas. My message really hasn't changed in that 30 years. It's just now people are literally listening. We'll be sure to link to all of your resources in the show notes of this episode. Randy, what do you want recent new practitioners, graduates, and pharmacy students to know about community pharmacy or your approach, and how can they contribute to the issue? Talking with my academic partners yesterday, we realized that people, one, have a bad feeling because of the social media presence of what they're talking about, workplace issues within community and and in particular for some of the bigger chains. So already there's this negative impression of community pharmacy, but then they might have the opportunity to go into an independent. And what they see right now is independents who are working firstly to just keep their pharmacy functional and, and surviving in this midst of turmoil. And that scares them. We're losing people who are worried about, I've spent a lot of money, I wanna make sure I can practice. And so where's the more safer points? I've had a lot of abilities to go elsewhere. I can go back to academia full time. I've been invited to open up a clinical practice within a family practice group. All the things that everybody says, oh, wow, that sounds really great. But I don't take that. I go back to community pharmacy because I'm like, you never know who's going to walk through that door who has a very unique problem. It's not dictated by the practice who I get to see. I get to see everybody. And I like that exposure to the community. And COVID-19 really woke me up to say, I'm not a solution just for my patients who come to my pharmacy, but really we are a solution for our whole community. We started connecting with other stakeholders that we never connected with. That includes senior groups, that includes public health, that includes social services. And that really made us realize just how health disparities are a problem within our own communities. We can help direct patients and get them connected to the resources. And I love community pharmacy because it allows you to really develop that entrepreneurial attitude and really apply some of the things you've always had great ideas about and think about it, put a plan together, a business plan, and then implement. And I tell people, if my son came to me and says, this is my idea, I saw tremendous value in that. So I said, not only am I going to hire you, I'm going to make you a partner. Now he has skin in the game too. I think there's going to be a lot more opportunities like that because a lot of the older pharmacists who've been owners for a number of years may not want to change or may not want to go through the process of developing that knowledge or skill set that you really need to have. So they're looking for young entrepreneurs to really help them get to that next level. You can have a wider impact on the whole community. That's very inspiring. Randy, thank you so much for joining us here today to share your thoughts and insights. It's been absolutely a pleasure to chat with you today, and I really appreciate you coming on. And listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.